Welcome back to GLF Live, the official podcast of the Global Landscapes Forum. We've all seen climate disaster movies like The Day After Tomorrow, where Mother Nature takes her sweet revenge on humanity for all the abuse we've put her through. It's a grim and sobering reflection of just how much bad karma lies ahead for us in the decades and centuries to come. But what if we use the power of fiction not just for shock value, but also to inspire action? To remind everyone that we can still prevent this dire situation from getting a whole lot worse. That's the topic of our discussion in today's episode, where we're joined by an acclaimed climate fiction writer and a leading heat expert to explore where their worlds intersect. Hi, everyone, and welcome to GLF Live. I'm Gabrielle Lipton, Editor-in-Chief of Landscape News for the Global Landscapes Forum. And we are here on this Friday to discuss a really interesting intersection of disciplines, literary fiction and environmental science. Joining from India is heat health expert Abhiyant Tiwari, who holds a master's in public health from Harvard and now advises Indian governance at multiple levels on heat wave health adaptation plans, as well as serves in numerous other national and international research and advisory positions around the world on this critical topic. And from New York, we have with us Alexandra Kleeman, who recently published a climate fiction novel called Something New Under the Sun, which I can highly recommend. It's a great read. And she's also published multiple other novels, holds bylines in every major publication, is an assistant professor at the city's new school, and was awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship in Fiction this year. So welcome to both of our speakers. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us for this special Environment Day GLF Live. I would like to start with hearing a bit from each of you about why you're doing what you're doing. So for you, Abiyant, this is why you've chosen to focus your career on heat and heat health and global warming and the science behind it. And Alexandra, uh, for you specifically in the capacity of your recent book, why you chose to um, start tackling climate fiction. Uh, so Alexandra, maybe we can start with you. Yeah, um, well, ever since I was a child, you know, I received um, the information, the warnings about global warming, which was often the call. Um, uh, called global warming more than climate change in the time. So it was always at the forefront of my mind, but it wasn't always easy for me to figure out what it might look like to address it in fiction, especially because so much of the way, I think historically that we've addressed possible problems of the future has been through dystopia and specifically, um, you know, post-apocalyptic novels, which I used to read as a kid, which often posit this sort of world that's going to be tribal and sort of the buccaneer future. Um, and, and that just seemed like a very tired direction to me. I think that there are many more avenues open to us than that. And it took me some time to figure out <clears throat> how exactly I wanted to talk about it and how I wanted to address what I saw changing in the environment around me and in the environment of the places that I loved and grew up in. I'm from Colorado and we see the effects of um, climate change acutely there in, in the wildfires that are uh, taking over and in the dryness that is prolonged and, and sort of unusually historically extended periods of drought. So um, on the one hand, I want to depict the reality that I see around me because that seems like an important thing to do, not to write into a genre of an artificially stable um, reality that we no longer live in. Um, 
but I also think that fiction needs more attention to the environment built into it because we tend to have human figures in the foreground. We talk a lot in creative writing programs about characters and characters are important, but characters are also in a world that is changing and affecting them. I think of Amitabh Ghosh a lot um, and how he talks about the necessity of making fiction adapt um, and show the way that people come into uh, intersections with the land around them. So that's me. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Um, I really like your point about bringing more attention to environment in fiction. And in the past, I feel like that's been quite a static character in novels, like environment is what it is. And you make a really good point that the environment is changing so quickly. And so that role the environment plays in literature needs to keep up with that and needs to reflect that. And I think that's a really interesting point. Uh, so Abiyan, we'll move to you now. What brought you into the research and the work and the advising that you're doing now on heat health? Yeah, so first of all, thank you so much, uh, uh, Gabrielle. Uh, thank you so much, uh, GLF, for uh, inviting me to this you know, very uh, interesting event where we have we brought in uh, you know, people like me who work on science and policy and people like Alexandra. Uh, who I really admire, like I also look forward to read her uh, latest uh, uh, book. But uh, what brought me to work on heat health? Uh, so I, I personally believe that everyone has to have a you know a personal story uh, or a connection with the work that they do. What is my story with uh, working on heat health? I'll not go into that. But what uh, Alexandra was just mentioning about the early warnings and early warning systems. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, and there are a lot of, lot of events. Let me just, you know, try to connect it with the current events that are going on right now. There are a lot of event, global events going on right now, including the Stockholm 50, which we may talk about later. But, uh, uh, you know, in past week, in last week, uh, uh, there was another uh, global event. We all talk about the, the, the climate change events, the IPCC events or the UNFCCC event. But uh, we should also note that there are other events also that happen. So the last week was uh, the uh, the UNDRR, you know, uh, UN Office for Disaster Risk Reduction. They had a global uh, platform for disaster risk reduction, which event happened last week. And one of the agenda that the you know uh, nations globally working upon uh, is 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 the Sendai Framework for Disaster Risk Reduction, which talks about. Uh, certain priorities in order to, to address the risk of disasters. And first of that is understanding risk. So I coming from, you know, background of uh, public health science, environmental science, think that this is my responsibility to connect, you know, uh, the science with people and policy. Uh, and, and when we talk about understanding risk, uh, you know, uh, it is very necessary in order to communicate the risk properly and in order to, you know, uh, lately govern the risk properly. Uh, for example, in India, we, we live in a country which, uh, uh, which is a tropical climate uh, and where, where most of the parts in, during summer do experience heat wave events. And it's a general belief that, you know, uh, heat wave is normal. It, it won't affect us, but that's wrong. That's wrong. It can still impact. Uh, it can still affect the the health of people, the life of people, the the livelihood of people. So, uh, so dwelling into you know uh, 
diving deep into this knowledge, uh, this information, and bringing out what exactly the the policymakers, uh, uh, the people in general should know about uh, from this information and act upon. Uh, is what I believe uh, as, a, as a professional working in the field of environmental health sciences and public health uh, as a responsibility of mine. And that is what brought me to, you know, work on developing heat health adaptation plans uh, and early warning systems uh, in India, uh, starting from uh, 2013 onwards, when we developed the first head, uh, heat action plan in the South Asia for the city of Ahmedabad. Thank you, Avian, and it's really admirable that you're working from this deep sense of responsibility and also to your point of communicating the science and communicating the research that you're doing is just so important in this day and age and communicating it properly to different audiences such as pop, uh, policymakers, the general public, etc. Uh, so thanks for that bit of background from both of you. Um, Alexandra, your new novel, Something New Under the Sun, is set in a time when climate change does seem worse than it is now. Uh, things like drought and water shortage and fires are uh, just a bit more heightened than they seem to be now in the United States where your novel is set. But it's a bit hard to tell just how far in the future your novel is. And so I was wondering if you could give us a bit of insight into um, just kind of the, how you put this plot together and the research that you did to underpin it. And if it if it is set five or 10 or 15 years in the future, or if it's just generally sometime out there that we're approaching. Uh, so yeah, anything you could say on that research process that fed into the plot? Yeah, um, I had a, a big problem presented to me when I thought about how far into the future this book was going to be, because I wanted it to be a near future novel. I think that there's something about people being able to recognize their world in a speculative fiction um, that makes them related back to themselves, makes them related to their moment. Um, a lot of speculative fictions push far, far into the future to account for all the changes that are going to happen. But I think this also allows us to keep it at something of a safer move. So um, I didn't choose a specific number of years in the future, but I wanted to sort of start from a place similar to our own, um, but push it towards some of these changes that in the climate reporting and early warning systems um, we know are coming and, and try to build them in, and especially to build in the way in which um, these drastic changes can become psychologically normalized in some sense. Um, we're already experiencing a lot of changes, higher temperatures, um, blackouts due to uh, people using air conditioning all at once in urban environments, things like that. Um, and it may be a shock the first time we see it, but quickly lose that sense of shock and try to just get ahead and on with life as fast as we can. So fiction is a place, I think, where you can slow down that process of, um, of getting on with it, make people look more clearly at it. And sometimes having um, these features that are not thought of as part of our time, um, Having, stick, having them stick out draws the reader's attention to them and makes them think continually about it, even in the context of more ordinary events. I um, really wanted to think about this feeling that you have now more than, more than we used to, where our 
daily life is unsettled by disaster. I'm talking about um, uh, when there's a fire burning someplace and the road you used to get home closes and you have to drive a long way around. All of these different um, adaptations and longer paths that we've taken in the face of disaster. Um, so I built in those disruptions based on little bits I've experienced in the past. However, <laughs> By the time I was editing the book, I was actually back in Colorado and um, we were experiencing wildfire season like none we've ever experienced before. Three of the largest wildfires in Colorado history were burning that summer. Um, and it was this eerie feeling um, when I was going over my manuscript of thinking, well, I imagine this to be near future, but actually the present is more extreme <laughs> than what I had imagined. So I'm going to have to push it even further in that direction. And, and understand, you know, that um, some of these effects are not as far off into the future as I imagined they were. That's a really terrifying realization to have that when you think you're writing something fiction and something that we're expecting and waiting for, but that it's actually happening now. Um, that's quite a staggering realization. Um, and I think to your point about the psychological normalization of climate change, I was just linking that in my mind to COVID and how quickly some of the adaptations we made for the pandemic just became completely normalized. Uh, and it is, um, it's tricky how quickly we can normalize things that are disasters and are major risks. Uh, so it's great that you're addressing that in your work. Uh, Abiyan, kind of to Alexandra's point about how the wildfires were the worst they've ever been in India, the heat wave that the subcontinent just experienced was record breaking and it hit 50 degrees Celsius in some areas. And these heat waves are set to become far more normalized and hit the subcontinent far more often than they have in the past. Uh, could you tell us a bit how people are adapting, how people are going to handle this? Uh, yeah, so you're, you're actually you're right. This wasn't a normal summer for us. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, this was uh, one of the hottest summer that we had in our history. In fact, our month of March was uh, the hottest March month in in the past history of 122 years, which is when the India started, India Meteorology Department started recording the weather observations uh, back in 1901. So yes, it was very hot. We almost had you know more than uh, 280 heat wave events uh, uh, throughout this this summer in, in 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 almost more than 16 states in India. Uh, and in fact, you know, the recent uh, reports from uh, the, the scientific community, including the one from the World Weather Attribution Organization, stated that, you know, because of climate change, uh, uh, this event, which would otherwise have happened in, in uh, once in a 3000 year, uh, years, would happen now in, in every 100 years. So the possibility of such, you know, severe, uh, intense event happening has definitely increased in, in India and Pakistan by 30 times. Uh, how people will, uh, you know, uh, handle this or how people are handling this? See, uh, while there is no doubt that we need to, you know, uh, work on mitigations, uh, you know, strategies in order to, uh, it is important to work on mitigation, you know, to limit the future global warming, uh, limit it up to 1.5 degrees Celsius, which we thought we should do. Uh, in 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 COP twenty during Paris, that we should restrict uh, by the end of this century. 
but the latest you know the latest ipcc reports also suggest that we might you know exceed reach or even exceed that warming by 2030 uh, you know by end of this decade itself in all possible emission scenarios and and and, and uh, it could go even worse uh, uh, in in the scenarios with the highest emission uh, levels but so 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 to restrict that 1.5 degree celsius warming we definitely need to work on the mitigation policies mitigation measures long term measures but what we are facing right now is already the consequences of 1.1 degree celsius warming that we have already made uh, in in our global average temperature uh, which we cannot avoid now so what is the point I and mean, what what are the solutions that we have now is to adapt and heat health action plans are one of such you know examples of adaptation that people uh, that that the cities and the governments are implementing in order to uh, address the uh, the issue of extreme heat so adaptation is the priority no doubt on that we must plan we must implement our heat health adaptation plans uh, and we must invest in, in in our adaptation plans because uh, still the financing in the adaptation uh, is far behind what has been committed uh, on all, on all the you know uh, global and regional climate summits uh, so definitely uh, you know to manage the unavoidable uh, we need to adapt what we are facing right now and to avoid the unmanageable that will happen in in future we need to mitigate uh, and ensure our mitigation policies are on track but yes heat health action plans are working in reducing mortalities we have seen examples from our uh, you know own country from india uh, for example in in ahmedabad after implementation of ahmedabad heat action plan uh, the the average mortality during the summers uh, has gone down as compared to uh, the summers prior to the implementation of uh, adaptation plan. And there are, you know, very uh, simple local tailor-made options that people, uh, that the governments are, you know, uh, implementing at the ground level. For example, raising public awareness that has, that has worked tremendous uh, throughout this uh, summer. Uh, we started working on Ahmedabad. I mean, the first plan was, uh, the Ahmedabad heat action plan in, in, in 2013. But after that, uh, several other cities and states and districts in India and even in our neighboring countries implemented their heat action plan, particularly after the 2015, you know, devastating heat wave that uh, that had a toll of more than 2,500 uh, deaths in India uh, uh, in the end of May and lately um, uh, in Pakistan also in the early June, uh, more than 1,200 people died in Karachi. Uh, Pakistan. So that those events were eye opener for the other parts of the you know countries uh, uh, in India and Pakistan as well. And the national governments, for example, the National Disaster Management Authority, the India Meteorology Department, the National Health Authority uh, departments, they started taking the 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 you know the uh, issue seriously and the importance of the issue and started working with their state counterparts, with their state and district agencies on developing their local heat health uh, adaptation plans and policies and uh, implement that. We have seen impact of public awareness, uh, you know, uh, that has happened throughout these years uh, in India uh, on the health, on the public health, at least in this year. I mean, the officially recorded number of deaths this year in India and Pakistan during the entire summer so far there's only 90, which is definitely under uh, uh, under reporting, and the under reporting of heat-related uh, morbidities and mortality is not just an issue of India; it's an issue of 
globally because uh, heat is also something that we call you know uh, uh, is difficult to report because the consequences that happen on health directly because of heat are only 10% but the rest of the 90% are indirect consequences for example those who are already vulnerable you know people with comorbidities people at the extremes of age the elderly uh, their existing you know conditions the uh, their existing comorbidities or health conditions do deteriorate even when they are indoors and they are not exerting or exposing themselves outside in the sun so we don't know the burden exactly but yes uh, what we didn't see during this summer which was almost entire summer we spent in heat waves there was no week when we didn't have alerts in different parts of the country uh, for heat waves but the good part was that we didn't see the we didn't see the rushes to the hospitals we didn't see the rushes to the emergency room you know uh, or the ambulances running around the cities for heat health emergencies uh, partly this could be credited to the 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 efforts that the national and the state agencies have put in in raising the public awareness and building the capacities of their health system and other key stakeholders in addressing the issues of heat health but what this particular heat uh, you know summer season has also taught us or or uh, you know flagged uh, uh, is the importance of uh, other sectors of the economy to work on heat health it's not just the health uh that has to uh, you know that 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 gets impacted directly because of the extreme heat but it's also the other sectors of the economy for example agriculture we saw impact of uh, heat waves on the on the wheat uh, you know uh, crop uh, uh, we saw the impact of heat we are also seeing the impact of heat on 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 the power the energy sector uh, in terms of coal shortages and um, you know power cuts in some in some regions so it's not just the responsibility of the health sector but it's responsibility of all uh, and all of these sectors of the economy will have to work on their own heat action plans in the future and come up with their own strategies to address uh, the issue comprehensively thank you i think uh, the intersection um, that's needed between different ministries between different specialists coming together because these issues of climate change and global warming are so pervasive, they can't just be left up to environment ministries to handle all of it. Um, it has to be handled by everyone collectively. Um, but it's great to hear that adaptation efforts are working. And your point that I'll just re-raise here because it is so important that in the climate change community, so much more finance has gone toward mitigation efforts than adaptation and the need to switch that and to start giving more finance to adaptation methods because they do work as we've seen in India is just so important. So I just wanted to highlight that. Uh, so we only have five more minutes, uh, which I wish we could go longer. This is such a rich conversation. Um, so I'll just pose uh, one final question to each of you. And if you could keep your answers to um, just a couple minutes, that would be great. So we can end on time here. Uh, but Alexandra, uh, regarding your novel, Something New Under the Sun, who is your intended audience uh, for this novel? And what do you hope this work of fiction changes in their lives and their minds and their behaviors? It's a great question. And it's a question I've thought about a lot. You don't get to choose your audience on this for a book and it depends on who picks it up. But um, uh, I, I both wanted to provide a space for people who are feeling um, climate-related anxiety, 
aquatic grief, environmental grief, um, to see some of their feelings reflected in one of my characters who goes to join an eco-commune. But most of all, I wanted to reach people who are planning to think about climate change on that particular day, who aren't necessarily expecting to find it in a book, um, and uh, to help do some work at breaking down the compartmentalization that we often carry through our everyday lives. We tend to um, think that climate change is a big problem that we'll think about when we think about big problems in, in a privileged country such as ours, where enough resources are available to shield us from a lot of the most immediate effects. Um, but to weave it into the everyday, to see how every action that we take connects up to this larger problem and to make um, the presence of climate change feel really palpable, I think is one of the most central ways in which I wanted to rewrite the reader's experience. Thanks a lot. And I think you do accomplish that, uh, just making this huge pervasive issue that is hard to grapple with and it is hard to wrap your head around it. Uh, but to put it directly into your characters' lives to show how um, society has come up with tricks and different mechanisms to deal with this disaster, um, because that is what's going to lie, lie ahead for us. Um, and Avian, for your last question, um, also looking at the narrative of global warming, uh, global heating, and how um, India, which is also portrayed in the media as one of um, yeah the countries suffering most of, from this issue so far, is there anything that you would hope to change about the narrative of India at this moment in regards to global warming and climate change? Yeah, I mean, uh, and this was also, you know, uh, a point that was highlighted uh, by our Union Minister of Environment in the ongoing, uh, I think today itself, on, in the ongoing, you know, uh, Stockholm 50 conference. Uh, so basically, India has all is already achieving, uh, you know, uh, or let's say overachieving what they have committed uh, in the field of renewable energies to, to address the issue of uh, greenhouse gases, for example, uh, we committed to achieve one, uh, 175 gigawatts from renewable energy, and we have already, you know, out of which we have already achieved 150 gigawatts. Uh, we plan, like India plans to phase out, uh, I mean, phase down coal, but not phase out coal. Uh, and for that, uh, you know, for phasing out the coal, India definitely requires uh, this coal. Uh, and in fact, India is upholding the the voice of developing countries in that sense uh, uh, in in getting the support from the the the, the global north uh, uh, to the developing countries for supporting their you know climate policies and climate uh, intervention in terms of both uh, expertise and financing uh, it's still not a, you know the the climate change or 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 the climate disasters are still not the political agendas in in the local elections in India, uh, except you know in the regions which are vulnerable to to uh, to climate-related disasters, for example, our coastal regions uh, or parts of northeast, or for example, Delhi pollution, which remains an issue uh, almost every time. But otherwise, it is not an issue. But uh, but by and large, uh, you know, uh, the people of India uh, seems to have uh, you know faith. In the cover in the current government, in their geopolitical policies, including uh, the ones on the climate change and environment uh, at the global scale. Uh, 
but yeah i mean we need to not just india but the entire world need to uh, pace up their actions we we have no time left now to to address this issue like uh, the time is gone like if we'll either we'll do it either we'll act now or there won't be any chance tomorrow thank you i think that's a really nice note to end on as well uh, i know alexandra needs to go so we'll wrap up here um but thank you both so much for joining such different but intersecting insights from both of you and i really appreciate appreciate the work that both of you are doing and thank you so much for taking the time to join us here today and to everyone who tuned in on your friday and made space for this in your day thank you so much and we will see you all next time on glf live and enjoy environment day on sunday thank you everyone join us again next week to hear from three incredible young women who are making waves in the world of ocean conservation if you liked what you heard today, please be sure to leave us a rating or write us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, and reach out to us on social media with the hashtag GLFLive. As always, for everything you need to know about landscapes, ecosystems, and climate change, check out our website at globallandscapesforum.org. We'll see you on the next one. <laughs>